you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. <laughs> some are happy to go, some less than happy. Well, good morning and happy Resurrection Day. We are gathered together this morning to celebrate that Jesus Christ not only died on the cross in our place, which is utterly amazing, but without his resurrection, his death would have been futile. Paul testifies that in 1 Corinthians 15, that it is in his resurrection that his death has power. It's in his resurrection that his death had meaning. So we gather together today to celebrate that and to worship him for it. I was a freshman in high school when I first believed in Jesus. I wasn't a bad kid. Now, I certainly did plenty of bad things, but I wasn't a bad kid. I believed in Jesus for any number of reasons, but along the lines, I struggled as a, as a teenager to understand my identity. I struggled to understand that I had value. I struggled to not find my worth in what I did every day. I struggled not to find my worth in my achievements. And I suspect if many of us are honest, we still do. In fact, I'd tell you that if I'm still honest, I do too. But my freshman year in high school, I came to believe that Jesus loved me. Despite the fact that I struggled with sin. Despite the fact that I gave myself over to things that I knew far better than. I believed in Jesus because he gave me a value that I never understood. I believed in Jesus because he gave me a significance that I'd never had before. When I first believed in Jesus, it was amazing that he could forgive me for all the sin that I'd struggled with. That I could be forgiven because of his death on the cross. And as a freshman, when I believed, I believed that he rose from the dead. Literally, that Jesus had been dead, and that he was no longer dead. The Bible testifies to this event. Paul would write that in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus was in fact dead. People want to argue that. It's interesting this time of year, if you turn on your TV, everything the media wants to argue is whether or not it actually happened. And this is the argument I'll give you quickly. There's a Roman soldier whose only job in life is making sure that guy dies. He's very good at his job. Therefore, he not only had he confirmed Jesus died, he shoved a spear up through the side of Jesus into his heart confirming he died. Why? Because that was his job. Jesus literally died and was pronounced dead. And through that, rose again victorious. He was resurrected and declared victory over sin. I believe that he did that for me. And because he did that for me, I was granted new life and a new walk with him. And I've been following him now for the last 27 years. And it's been by far the most incredible journey of my life. The most fulfilling thing I can even imagine. And the absolute source of all the joy and strength that I have. And it all started in my life by believing in him. Today we celebrate on this Easter morning that Jesus Christ, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified on a Roman cross, 
that he was declared dead by a Roman legion, and that he was buried by wealthy and very, very unlikely converts. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. That Jesus is alive, and that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, and just like he changed my life 27 years ago, he's still at work transforming people's lives. This morning, I want to call us into the Gospel of John, chapter 20. If you don't have one, there's a Red Pew Bible in front of you. Love for you to pick it up and follow through with us as we walk through parts of the resurrection story to see Jesus at work even in his resurrection. On the first morning of his resurrection, Jesus was already calling people to believe. You'll see this. You might remember the story. It was early on a Sunday morning when Mary Magdalene, probably unable to sleep, goes to the tomb. It's still dark outside, and when she arrives, she notices that the stone is no longer in front of the tomb. So she runs to go tell Simon and to tell John. By the way, when we read this story, we must always pause and recognize the way the New Testament upholds women during a time that they had no rights and no valid testimony. Because what happens here in the Gospel of John is that the Word of God not only gives Mary a place in the most important story in history, but it also takes her testimony as valid, something the world around it wouldn't have touched. But Jesus does. It will always be a striking part of this story that it's Mary Magdalene who notices. It's Mary Magdalene that testifies to the rock being moved. And it's Mary Magdalene that goes to seek out Peter and John. And so they come running to see what she has found. Look with me in verse 3 and following. It says, So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's these little nuances in the text that I love that remind us that they're real people that wrote this. Because John wants you to know he's faster than Peter. Because John still struggles with sin. Verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded in a place by itself. Peter walks into the tomb, notices that Jesus is not there, finds the cloth, and know Jesus. You can only imagine what grows through his mind at this moment. The bewilderment, the amazement, all the thoughts coming to him. And then John enters in verse 8. Then the other disciple, who'd reached the tomb first, again, a sinner, also went in, and he saw and believed. Now that's a striking statement. Coming from a disciple. That he saw and believed. If John has a theme through this text in the book of John, it's that seeing and believing Jesus. And here he gives you his own testimony. That he walks in, sees, and believes. This is John's testimony of his faith. Of his belief in Jesus. That he walked into the tomb took in the reality that Jesus was not there, 
and he believed. That was enough for John. That's what he needed. John watched Jesus die. In fact, if you follow through the gospel accounts, he's actually the only one we know that was there. He watched Jesus die, and he watched an empty tomb. And that was enough for John. It must have been in these moments that he recalled all these different words that he heard from Jesus, things that he recalled in his gospel. For example, Jesus speaking to Martha in John 11. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone and lives Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, John had watched Jesus minister to other people. John had watched Lazarus be raised from the dead. These are his words to encourage Martha. That if you would believe in me, though you'll die, you will live. The same promise he gives to all of us now who would believe in him. And the same promise he lives out by being resurrected. John had to have these words in mind. That Jesus is the resurrection. Not just the resurrected one. That it's Jesus who came back from death to make it even possible that though you might die someday, you might know resurrection. Friends, this is the hope of Easter. Isn't it? That you might die someday, but that's not the end of your story. You just don't end up in a box of worms and dirt. That's not it for you. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you too will be resurrected. That's the hope of this day that we celebrate. And, And John must have had the words from the upper room that Jesus spoke to him. Several days before, when Jesus told them that he would leave and that he would come back, and in John 14, 29, Jesus assures the disciples and says, I now have told you before it takes place, so that when it takes place, you may believe. Jesus assured his disciples, they're going to take me, and you're going to not know what's happening, and you're going to be really afraid, but trust me. I'm coming back. And when I come back, you'll know and you'll believe. See, as we've stepped into this holy week, we come through Good Friday when we celebrate that Jesus went to the cross in our place. And the cross is magnificent. But we miss often the fact that the cross won on Friday. And that Saturday had to be a terrifyingly hopeless day to many of these guys. A hopelessness that maybe God isn't who he said he was. A hopelessness that maybe Jesus isn't still moving. He's not still alive. He's not still going to encourage them, come alongside them, support them. And friends, many of us lead lives like it's still Saturday. But Sunday came. And that's always the testimony of Saturday is that Sunday comes. That hope is on its way. That Jesus is coming back. And he's bringing you back. Jesus assured his disciples, when I go, 
And when I, and I'm not there anymore, know that I told you this would happen so that you would believe. Jesus has a primary desire in the life of his disciples that they believe, that they trust what he's doing, that it's more than just watching Jesus do stuff. It's more than just knowing his words, that there's a component of belief that Jesus even exhorted his disciples into. Not just follow me, not just do what I say, believe in me. This is Jesus' exhortation. So when John walked into the tomb, and for all that wasn't there, it was enough for John to trust everything that Jesus had told him. It was enough for John to believe. And follow this. It was enough for him to believe even though he didn't yet have understanding. Look at verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John didn't get it. He didn't fully comprehend everything about Jesus. He didn't have to fully comprehend his death. He didn't fully comprehend the resurrection. And yet he believed. A testimony to us that we don't have to know everything. We don't have to have all the answers figured out. We don't have to understand the deep meanings and be called into belief. There's a sweet picture given where Jesus gathers the disciples. If there's a moment in eternity that I'd love to live through, this is it. Jesus gathers his disciples on a beach and begins to cook fish. Now, I believe that brother could grill. So that's part of it. But in that moment, Jesus walks them through the whole Old Testament explaining who he was and how he fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecy. What an absolutely beautiful picture that would be to live through because that's Jesus granting his disciples the understanding that they lacked here in the tomb. Again, telling us, That you don't have to know everything to believe, but Jesus will absolutely bring you along. He'll explain it to you as you step forward to believe in Him. John walked into the tomb. He saw the clothes lying there. And he believed. John would go on to write in his Gospel, John, John 20, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John takes it a step further that not only did he believe, not only did Jesus change his life, that John loved you. And I literally mean you so much that he sat down and penned an entire gospel so that you would know all that Jesus did, so that you would know the words of Jesus, so that you might believe. So these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. 
John's hope is that you would be stirred by the life of Christ. That you would believe in Jesus. And that you would have a new life. That Jesus' spiritual resurrection would take place in you by believing that you would become a new creation. It's John's hope, as he writes, that what had happened to him in belief would happen to you. But this isn't the only testimony we find in the literal resurrection of Jesus. John continues to write on in the story in chapter 20. Let's skip ahead to verse 24. John 20, 24, and 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. You might remember this story if you've walked through the gospel accounts that Jesus had already appeared to many of the disciples. He'd already showed himself. You're kind of led to believe by that text that that might have brought a number of other guys to belief. doesn't strictly tell you that. But they claim, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas wasn't there. As we step into Thomas's story, let's give this brother a break, right? He, he gets a pretty hard time. Was Thomas, we don't know why he's not there. We just know he's not there. Does God blame him for that? No, I don't think so. Because Jesus actually makes a pretty intentional movement towards Thomas in these next couple of verses. Because Thomas claims and says to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas, who walked with Jesus for three years, Thomas, who watched Jesus walk on water, Thomas, who watched Jesus feed 5,000 men, save women and children, says, I won't believe unless I experience Jesus, unless I experience His resurrectedness by touching Him, by feeling His wounds. That's what it takes for me to believe. Now let's contrast that versus John. John walks into the tomb, sees nothing, and says, I'm in. There's nothing here. I'm all in. Thomas says, man, I don't know. Man, i got to touch his hands i got to touch his side. See, for Thomas, Thomas never doubted that Jesus was who he said he was. Thomas wasn't doubting that Jesus went to the cross. Thomas just wasn't sure. His, his kind of line of thinking didn't have a framework for guy gets crucified, guy raises from the dead. Which, who blames him for that, right? I didn't have that in my framework. And, and so Thomas says, this is what I need. So what's Jesus do with that? Does Jesus cast him aside? Does Jesus say, you who doubt, get out? No, it tells you in verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and this time Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. By the way, that's a magnificent magnificent saying all by itself. Disciples in a locked room feel pretty secure about life. When risen Savior just shows up, comes right through the wall, kind of tells you something about his transcendence, something of the resurrected life. Jesus comes in and says, peace be with you. 
Not to shame Thomas, but to show up before Thomas so that he might believe you're actually led based on the account. Because God has given us His Word, we lean into what God tells us. It sure seems like Jesus is showing up for Thomas. He doesn't have a whole lot of other things on his agenda. Jesus shows up, greets them in a common greeting and says to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas needed to know that it was Jesus. He needed to know that this is the guy that he'd walked with for three years. Thomas needed to know that it was Jesus whose hands had been nailed to the cross. And that it was Jesus who was speared in the side confirming His death. And now Thomas knew that it was Jesus who'd gone to the cross in His place. And Thomas knew that it was Jesus who had risen from the dead and now stood before Him fully alive so that Thomas could proclaim all that words can muster in him in verse 28. Thomas says, My Lord and my God. Thomas believes. He steps into Jesus to trust Him. To trust His resurrection. And it puts belief in Thomas. I don't know how much you know about the rest of his story. If you lean in tradition, Thomas goes on to spread the gospel in what is now much of the Muslim world. Thomas stepped out way. Thomas went out on his own, took the gospel to all sorts of far-reaching places, ultimately utterly martyred for his faith, killed because he'd so thoroughly bought into the hope of Jesus Christ. He'd so thoroughly bought into what Jesus had accomplished for him that not only did he believe, he put it all in on belief that this is now the only thing that matters. This is the only hope I have. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, you are who you've claimed to be. And what we find in this 20th chapter of the book of John, in these brief verses, we find a disciple who needed literally nothing to believe. And we find a dis disciple who needed the most, who needed to touch the hands of Jesus, who needed to touch the side of Jesus. And both came to believe in Jesus. And both of them would go their entire lives believing in Jesus. You may realize this. John was not martyred. They tried to. That's actually part of the story of John. That the Romans decided that we should try to kill this guy. So they put him in a pot of oil and began to boil it. When the oil began to boil and John didn't die, they considered him killed. It's not a bad thought. 
let's try to boil a guy to death. He doesn't die. We've given it our best shot. So they put him on an island. They exiled him. We can't kill this guy. This is the belief lived out in John's life. Paul would later give you his testimony. Find it in the book of Acts. Find it in a couple of places in Corinthians. But this is what Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 1.16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. See, Paul, who had once persecuted the church, says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel of who Jesus is and what He did for us. Because Paul says literally that this salvation is available to anyone. And he writes, whether Jew or Greek, whether you're in the in crowd that kind of gets it, or whether you're on the out crowd who's really kind of out there, it doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It's available to everyone. And here's Paul's condition. It's available to everyone who believes. And that by believing, you receive the power of God for salvation. Which is to say this. The Bible makes it clear that it's not your good works that save you. It's not a matter of making sure your good outweighs your bad. It's not a checklist where if you do the following 12 things and skip the following four, you get in on the merit of your experiences. Which is to say you can't earn your way in. It doesn't matter how you spend your time or or what you give to or how much you sacrifice your life to do good things. The only merit here, according to the Bible, is belief. It was enough for John. It was enough for Thomas. And it was enough for Paul to believe. Nine chapters later, Paul would continue to write in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a salvation available to anyone and to everyone. Friends, as we wrap this up this morning, I want to bring us back to the words of Jesus to His friend Martha. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus thought enough of His friend Martha to ask her, do you believe this? Is this the hope of your life? Friends, as we've gathered together on this Easter morning, a time when we invite friends and family to spend time with us, to have meals with us, there is no greater or more important consideration for us than this. Do you believe this? Is this what you will stake your life on? Or, when you die... Are you planning on bringing a list of good things? Are you planning on just putting out a good person argument? Or do you want to know 
that you know that you know that you know beyond a shadow of doubt that without any question you are not good enough to be there. Because friends, none of us will be. But we will stand in that moment claiming Jesus Christ. That that is the only thing that grants us eternal life is belief in Jesus. And we are granted that according to the Scriptures that whoever would believe in Him, He gives the right to become children of God. That He claims us based on our belief. Friends, on this Easter morning, we celebrate that the tomb was empty. And that not only did Jesus die for our sins, but the the grave could not hold Him because He's alive. And because He's alive, He's still working. And because He's still working, He's still saving people. He's still offering eternal life. And He's still resurrecting us out of our mess. So whether that belief that Jesus calls you to this morning is to salvation, or whether the belief Jesus calls you to this morning is to allow Him to resurrect parts of your life that are dead. It is a message all of us need to be reminded of. That we gather together to worship a Savior who is alive. And who breathes life into us. And grants us salvation and hope. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that 27 years ago you granted me belief. Father, though I was stuck in my sin, though I was trying to find my own way, Father, in different seasons of my life have I been given over to false thoughts about your gospel, thinking that if only I could do enough good things, thinking as long as I didn't do this, that, or this, that you would be okay with me. Father, thank you for just the grace in my life for men to step into my life and challenge my belief. To ask me, do you believe this? Friends, I pray this morning that you would be struck by that question. Do you believe this? Is our hope for salvation pinned only on Jesus or is it something pinned on something else? And Father, I pray this morning that if there are some amongst us who still have questions, who are still seeking like Thomas, Father, that You would meet them, You would seek them out, and You would make Yourself completely known. Because as we've gathered together as a family this morning, the most important question is, do we believe this? And will we trust in You to save us the way you saved John and transformed his life. The way you saved Thomas and transformed his life. The way you saved Paul and transformed his life. Father, the way you saved me. Father, salvation that's available to everyone. Father, we give you thanks and we worship you this morning for what you accomplished at the cross, and for far more what you accomplished in an empty tomb. 
Father, thank you for your abundant grace to us, expressed through your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.